Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. It's Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. If you found it, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they may they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled, fled from the tomb, for tre- from trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. I have a picture that I would like to show you. That's them. Uh, this, these guys are the basketball champions for our last tournament. <laughs> okay, well, we can take that off now. Uh, let's pray before we begin. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents. Since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's put up that picture again. I was just joking around. Um, these guys are young, good-looking, not only that, but they're athletic, and they won the 2019 basketball championships for CGS. Uh, I am not there, if you didn't notice, because I am not young and good-looking, apparently, enough to make that team. But I congratulate them, and if you want to uh, play with us next year, I encourage you to do so. Uh, is that just one finger everybody has except Hojin? Does Hojin have, like... Five fingers? Did you win five championships, Hojin? Where is he? You won three? Okay. Then that's a lie. There's a deceit here that I must correct. Um, Anyway, thank you and congratulations to the basketball team. There is something that we do. It's called a Paschal greeting. That has been tradition. And when I say uh, Christ is risen, we all respond, he is risen indeed. So can we try that? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. 
And Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It's not an empty tradition, but this Paschal greeting is meant to remind us that today we celebrate and remind each other of this joyous good news of Easter. Why is Easter so special? Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, came into the world from the Father, was born a virgin, lived a sinless life. He did incredible miracles, loved people, blew every single category that we had away. He blew every single one of our categories away. What is love? Jesus would truly show us. What is power? He would show us. What is obedience? And he would show us. But nevertheless, he was crucified for our sins. And then on the third day, this is what we celebrate in Easter. We celebrate this Sunday. On the third day, he was raised again from the dead, never to die again. That's why when we say Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, is an emphatic statement that we make to celebrate this truth. He appeared to more than 500 people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, it says, more than 500 people, and you can still meet them. The people in Corinth, they were reading this letter. He said, more than 500 people, and you can still meet some of them. These are the people that saw Jesus at different times and different places after the resurrection. Go and meet them. Mark would even write before, in a few chapters before, about Simon the Cyrene. Simon, who was from Africa, who just coming by, was ordered to carry Jesus' cross. And Mark would describe Simon the Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? Because Alexander and Rufus were probably there. You could ask Alexander and Rufus. They, his, their father carried Jesus' cross. Over 500 different people, different times, different places were able to see, touch, and hear and they were given many convincing proofs by Jesus Christ himself. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Because Jesus was raised from the dead physically. People recognized him. They could put their hands in his wounds. He would eat fish in front of them precisely to say, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I'm a real guy. Because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see here. And yet... It was more than physical because he was able to go and come at his will. Locked doors wouldn't get in his way. There was an unusual new dimension even to this physical body that he had. In the Bible, it teaches us he ascended to the right hand of the Father and now he is seated in the throne with God and he intercedes for us there praying for his people every day. He is reigning and he is putting all his enemies under his feet. And in the end of Matthew, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him and he will never die again. He has the keys of death and hell in his hands. Every part about Jesus' life is special and fascinating it's amazing 
And I want to go over just what's so special about this part. What is so special about this part, about what was read today? There's a lot of resurrection stories that we must have gone over every Easter, but I want to take our focus on just this one today. And on verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Mark is telling us about three women who planned on going to Jesus' body to, to prepare it with spice and oils. Why? Why would they do that? Well, it was Jewish custom to anoint corpses with oil mixed with myrrh and spices and aloes. In John chapter 19, it shows us that even Nicodemus would prepare these spices and aloes and myrrh, this mixture, and he prepared 75 pounds of that mixture. These women, though, were preparing, and they were purchased by them to go and anoint Jesus' body. The, this, this is different from what you might think. It's not embalming. This is anointing the body. The reason why the Jewish people did this is because they would put this mixture, the, the spices, the myrrh, and oil, as an act of devotion. An act of devotion, okay? So we'll go to verse 2. And very early... On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They couldn't go right after because it was already too late. The Sabbath had begun and it was dark after Good Friday. So as soon as there's light after the Sabbath ends, they go up to the tomb where Jesus was laying or where they thought Jesus was laying. And this is verse 3. Verse 3, they say, they start saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from, uh, for us? From the entrance of the tomb. This is quite the, the kind of discussion and dialogue that they're having. The stone was big, it was huge, and they couldn't do move it without the help of others. And the question you would start to ask is, why were they alone? Where were the other disciples? In John chapter 20, it tells us that they were so scared that they went into hiding and they would lock the doors. Everyone was scared. The women here were scared. They would go as soon as the sun rose because they needed light to see which tomb it would be. But they would go before everyone else would go. Everyone was scared. They thought that now Jesus was dead. He was crucified. They're next. We're next. But what can we do? What can we do? We still got to do this devotion. He was good to us while he was alive. And that's the question that is being posed here that we see, have you ever felt hopeless? Was there ever a time when you were in a situation and you didn't know what to do? You know, this question alone shows us that there's two groups of people, okay? One group would go to the tomb and the other group would stay behind locked doors, but their situation was the same. They were both hopeless, and then it goes to verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Looking up, they saw. You might read this in the English and be like, this is pretty redundant. What does that mean? In the Greek, looking up is anablepo, 
that means to gain sight. In other passages, when they use this word, it would be if Jesus would heal someone's sight, they would say, this person had anabaplo, which meant this person received their sight. So Mark uses this phrase, anablepo, gain sight. So as they gained sight, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. I think that's very important. And entering the tomb in verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, all these details that are being presented here is there for a reason. And people that would be initially reading this would be a little confused. And I don't want to pass this by. Right side? What does that have to do with anything? Why right side? This is an unnecessary detail because this is what people would normally think. If you want someone incredible like Alexander the Great and you want to tell his story, he is a legend. What you would do is you would write a legend, which legends have been written about, and you would use hyperbole. You would use exaggeration. There he stood like a mountain on top of a mountain with the sword, and he cut down nations. That's what you would write. You wouldn't write he had a mole on his right side of his cheek. You wouldn't write that because there's no point in writing that. Why would you put a detail here? And people, scholars in the past have racked their brains out. What does right side mean? doesn't mean it's because Jesus is on the right, but that doesn't make sense because this is an angel. This right side detail is put there, and people are starting to figure, people have started to figure out. It's put there because it's actually what happened. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. They saw a young man sitting with white clothes, white robes, sitting on the right side of the tomb, and they just reported it as they saw it. This is what was there. This is not hyperbole. What we may think looks like hyperbole is put in with such detail that no other writers at the time would have written this way. It's fiction now, today, 2,000 years later. We write things like, and he drew a deep breath. And as he exhaled, he saw his breath because it was cold. I don't know. You would write all these little details now, but they wouldn't write like that in the past, nor would they think this was any good to write like that unless it really happened, unless he was actually there on the right side. That's why it's incredible. And then this is what that man says. We believe him to be an angel. We see in the other gospels, he is an angel. And he says this to them. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. You were there, but he has risen. He is not here. And he goes, see, look at the place where they laid him. He even asks them, hey, check this place out. It's empty. He's not there. And that's even the more amazing thing that the angel is pointing out. You think this is amazing? You think this huge stone? What they had to do was... They, they would put a, a, a stone slab that was cylind, uh, cylindrical and it would kind of be rolled down this slow hill so that it would cover uh, the opening of the tomb. And then other, other records show us that they would seal it. And if a seal is broken, you're in big trouble, especially if it's a Roman seal. So guess what the Pharisees made them do? They got them a Roman seal. So it's nearly impossible to break. And you see, in hopelessness, but still we got to do this, these women would go to the tomb. And what they would see is this incredible sight. The stone is rolled away by this one guy. 
Where's the rest? But he goes, this is not the crazy thing. The crazy thing is, I want you to come here and look. It's empty. It's not a magic trick. It's empty. He is risen. And here's verse 7. This is, if you've been listening to us for the last six weeks, this is always what happens. When there is a vision, there is a mission. And exactly, you see this here, the angel goes, but go, but go. Now that you've seen this vision, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now that you've seen this, go tell somebody. Tell his disciples and tell Peter. I love how this is written because it doesn't say, tell Peter and the disciples. What does it say? It says, tell the disciples and Peter. Why is this significant? Why are all these details here that's so amazingly, like almost innocuous, maybe superfluous, but it's significant? Because the writer was Mark. Mark, in Peter's letter, Mark is called son by Peter. Peter goes, this is my son, meaning spiritual son, just as uh, Timothy was Paul's spiritual son in that sense. And it's widely believed that Mark got his source, his main source was Peter. And if you read the entire gospel of Mark, guess who looks good? So if you want to really, if you really want to set up like an organization and you want to set up a, a tier of leaders and then sub-leaders, you know, you have your CEO and there's the board, there's, you know, all these chief officers and then there's the senior managers or VPs and it goes all the way down. If you want to do that, you have to show yourself like, I'm capable, I'm pretty good. But if you read the Gospel of Mark, who looks good here? And the answer is nobody. Everybody looks terrible. In fact, Jesus goes at one point, are you guys so dumb? Because everybody looks terrible. But especially one person looks really bad. It was Peter. Even the chapter before, Peter would be going to kind of look. When Jesus was getting crucified, Peter would follow him from the distance, kind of sneaking around. And someone would be like, I saw you with Jesus before. Peter would be the one who starts calling down curses on himself, saying, I don't know that man. Imagine, look at that picture. I think I saw you with Jesus. They'd be like, if I saw Jesus, may I be damned to hell. Like, that's the kind of curses he's calling upon himself. He does not look good. And then it says the rooster crowed, and he wept because he doesn't look good. In fact, you even go up, other gospels record Peter. It's like, who do people say? I am. And Peter would be like, you're Christ the Messiah. In the Gospel of Mark, it goes, you're Christ the Messiah, and then moves to the next scene because other Gospels would go, oh, and on this rock I will build my church. You guys remember that in Matthew? I will build my church, and you know, even the gates of Hades cannot overcome it. In Mark, it just moves on, and Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die, and Peter goes, you're not going to die, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Peter does not look good here. And even the things where he may look smart, maybe, he saw this incredible vision. And Jesus was, Jesus was on top of a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah would show up. These are like heroes of the Jewish faith. They would show up 
and they're conversing with Jesus. It's Peter who goes up to them. He's like, should, should I change the sheets and the bed for you guys? Like, he didn't even know what to say. So he was like, should I make a tent for you? He does not look smart. That's the bottom line. Even parts where he could look good, he doesn't look good. Who looks good here? Who looks good here? Even the women that came to the tomb, they were much better than those that were at least locked up in the room. But even the women that would come to the tomb and the angel goes, go tell people. What does verse 8 say? They said nothing. They were afraid. Who looks good here? Peter does not look good, and yet he becomes the leader of the apostles. Mary Magdalene, we, we said this before, there's legend, there's history, there's stories about Mary Magdalene, where uh, this uh, Paschal greeting that we did is attributed to her. She would go up to Emperor Tiberius, and then as a greeting, she would go up to Emperor Tiberius and say, Christ is risen. And so it's attributed to her, this uh, greeting. These are amazing people of the faith. The women, the disciples, everyone here, except in this gospel, everyone looks terrible. Why? Because they actually were terrible. They were bad folk. They didn't know what they were doing. Jesus would get frustrated and be like, are you dumb? How come you can't get this? I'm spelling it out for you. However, this is what looks Beautiful, the resurrection. Jesus looks beautiful because in spite of our failings, and we heard it from our testimony from our brother, in spite of our failings, the resurrection shows us that Jesus Christ came to also make us beautiful. We may be failures. We may fall down again and again. But the resurrection shows us that there's no reason for us to deserve any of this, any kind of glory, any kind of following or leadership or people to even listen to you. However, the resurrection shows us that even though we have failed, Christ has succeeded. Christ is victorious and it is Christ who grabs you. And if Christ grabs you, you share in his victory now. That's what the resurrection shows us. Who is beautiful? Jesus is beautiful. So what does that mean? What are the implications of this? The resurrection vindicates Good Friday. When we sang, Tetelestai, it is finished it is paid in full. The resurrection means I have accepted that payment. And it's good. And God raises him up. And he delivers his son. And saying, my son's work was perfect. He is not staying in the grave. And he raises him from the dead to vindicate all that he accomplishes for us. So what you can say and think is then this Easter is every promise of God, as I place my trust in Jesus, it's not about looking inwardly anymore. It's not about looking inside. If I look inside, there's a lot of bad stuff. I mean, I think Peter, Mary Magdalene, are a hundred thousand times better than me. And yet, 
it wasn't their goodness that could save them. But what happens is Jesus opens the eyes and they look up. And they're able to see the empty tomb and that resurrection is given to them by God. We have been given freedom. We have been given glory. We have been given blessing. This glorified body that Jesus has, the Bible shows us that Jesus is the forerunner. He's the first fruit. He's the first kind of person that we can see, ah, this is what it's going to look like. I can't wait. I can't wait for my turn. When is it going to be my turn? But he's the first one to come. And I've always imagined, wow, Jesus, he went through locked doors. Does this mean teleportation? Because that would be amazing. Mm. Anyway, but you start thinking like, wow, these are amazing things. And we do go back all the way to what we were created for, to enjoy what God has given us back in Eden, but even more so. What happens in the resurrection is there is now vindication for the reconciliation. What that means is in this life, in this world today, there is no doubt about it. Who can, who can argue about it? There is a deterioration, a breakdown, a corruption of relationships. And the Bible shows us why. The reason why we have this corruption across the board in the world is because our relationship with him had been corrupted and broken. And on the cross, Jesus is vindicated, meaning that he has now reconciled us with God and so that we can be reconciled with each other. This is what he shows us, and this is the promise we have in the resurrection. The implications of Easter are just staggering. It's something that I want you to, just like my brother Eugene said, go to your small groups, go to groups that just start studying it because you could study it and study it and study it and learn more about how beautiful Jesus is. This is something that implicates the whole world. And the whole world has been changed. We talk about it. Where were the first schools? the first hospitals, the first orphanages, the people when there were plagues, who ran into the city when everybody was running out? They were Christians. Why would you do that? Look at the change. People were just scared to death. They would hide. They would lock themselves up because if there is no answer for death, then it is a scary world. Then everything I do here. What is it for? What's the point? But if there is resurrection, then there's hope in everything I do. I can run to the sick. I can help heal those that are on the side because this has been rectified. And this is what the church is. The resurrection builds the church and it's the foundation of the church. This is why Easter is the biggest holiday for Christians. Because we see that because of the resurrection, we could do things that we could have never done before because there is now hope that is not just unwavering on our part. There's hope that is eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And even though you suffer a little, you know what the resurrection shows you? That God can change that and turn that into something good for you. That's incredible. That's incredible. Even death on a cross, God can turn that into glory for him and make it something good. What can stand in his way? 
And if you are with him, what can stand in your way? That's why these people will go up and face the emperors. Peter will go up and historically we see that he didn't even want to get crucified like Jesus. I'm not even worthy to die like him. Crucify me upside down. But they would do that with joy, knowing that there is an eternal hope that nothing in this world can take away now because Jesus rose again from the grave. And that's what we celebrate today. Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. This is not just a tradition that we say is not empty talk but there is power to it because Jesus did rise again from the grave hallelujah praise be to the Lord he is risen and he is risen indeed let's pray in your holy scripture Lord we learn that you Jesus you were delivered up for our sins and raised up for our justification showing us that your son's work was perfect and that's why he did not and could not stay in the grave and now he raises up also from the dead all those that have placed their faith in him Lord God we pray the prayer that we see here to open our eyes so that we can see. Only then will we see and truly know that that grave is empty. And only then will we have resurrection, hope, and assurance. Oh God, as your people pray to you now, grant us your mercy and grant us your grace so that our lives will be changed and forever saved with you in eternity. Let's pray. And just as we've learned, if there are things in your heart that you need to lift up to the Lord, things that you cannot see, hope that you cannot see in the future or beyond this horizon, then this is something that is promised us through the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is our living hope. And cast your cares on him. Pray to him that he would open your eyes so that you can see just as the disciples also saw. Let's pray.